When I was two years old, uh, my dad, who's a pastor, was sent to start a church in a town called El Paso, Texas. And for those of you who don't know where El Paso exactly is in Texas, I have a little map for you. It's a, it's a border town right along the Mexican border. And right across the border from El Paso is a very large Mexican city called Juarez. And Juarez was a place, as a kid, up until about sixth or seventh grade, we lived there, uh, that we visited several times every year, especially when relatives from the north came down, they'd want to go and visit Mexico. And although it was just across the Rio Grande River, and so it wasn't far away at all, um, Juarez might as well have been halfway across the world. Because as a kid, I remember, it was just so different. And one of the, the very obvious things is that the language was different, of course, but, but that was just the start. Uh, shopping at the market in Juarez was different, different than anything I had experienced uh, in my short life in El Paso or in the United States. So if you're walking by a shop or a store at the market, the store owner will actually come out of his shop and do everything he can or she can to get you to go into their shop to see their stuff, okay? And then you very rarely, if ever, should pay what's actually on the price tag. That's different. But instead, shopping at the market, well, you haggle and negotiate. And then as my dad taught me, or at least as I watched him do, you walk out if necessary, okay? Um, there are forms of entertainment in Juarez that I just, you know, had never seen in the United States and in, in some ways probably a good thing. Uh, in the center of town was a stadium or an arena that was built primarily for bullfighting. The, the type where matadors wearing, you know, uh, elaborate outfits uh, fight bulls to the death. And uh, let me just give you a clue. The matadors never lost, okay? Uh, Neighborhoods were different. Houses were smaller, they were closer together, they were painted fluorescent. One thing that's still ingrained in my brain is that the type of poverty that uh, I remember seeing in Juarez was, was different. Uh, saw an entire neighborhood, it seemed, made out of uh, homes, made out of cardboard boxes, uh, sheltering families from the, the hot sun. And as I look back on that, as I think back on it now so many years later, here, here's what I, I think about. I think about how that was a really good experience for me as a kid. Um, it was good for me to see that the world is a, a big place and that, well, not everyone lives the way that I live. Not everyone has what we have. Not everyone's experiences are the same as our experiences. It's one of the blessings that can happen with traveling is you get to see the, the bigger world. And I think that's very important because there's something that's true about all of us and it's our first fill-in for today. It's easy to make life all about me and about my family and about my home and about what I want and what will make me happy. And I want to acknowledge too that this reality is something that's in many ways understandable. 
Uh, I bet I know who you've lived with the longest in your life. It's you. The person you see every morning, the person you need to deal with every day the most is you. And then you add the sinful nature into things, which is also continually pointing itself towards me and what I want and selfishness. And honestly, it makes sense that life so easily becomes about us and what we want. But I I want to challenge you for a moment here because, because when you follow Christ, when God becomes your Lord, we recognize that we're called to a life that's not all about me. That there is someone new to live for, something bigger to live for, that God has called us to not live lives that are about us, but actually that we are to love others even more than ourselves. And and so today, as we we close out the book of Jonah, this is what's going to happen. God, through Jonah, is going to challenge you. He's going to challenge me to broaden our focus and to open our eyes to a bigger picture than just what makes me happy and what we want for ourselves. Now, when we ended chapter three last week, well, I could summarize it this way. Everything seemed great. So Jonah, he was no longer running from God, but instead had gone to Nineveh. Um, Jonah, had, who, had didn't, who didn't want to share the message of God, is now boldly sharing the word of God. The Ninevites, that capital city of Assyria, those people who live there have stopped their you know, lack of love for the true God, and they've repented, and they've turned to the Lord in probably what's my favorite verse in chapter 3, the Ninevites believed God. <laughs> And God, well, we closed last week by being told that he relented and he did not send on them the destruction and calamity that he had said would have been theirs because of their sin. And so when, when you think about all the good stuff going on, um, you think about, you know, this would have been a perfect way to end the book. Because honestly, everyone there should be happy. God's happy because the Ninevites have repented. The Ninevites are happy because they're alive and their city's not destroyed. And Jonah should be happy because... Jonah should be happy when... And what we find in chapter four, is that Jonah's not happy at all. What we find in chapter four is something very surprising, that Jonah is ticked off. Turn to chapter four, verse one. To Jonah, this, the fact that God did not destroy Nineveh, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. In fact, When you look at the Hebrew, you recognize Jonah wasn't just a little bit upset. 
He was angry at God so much that he called what God did an evil to him. The literal translation for that verse is this. God's mercy towards Nineveh was evil to Jonah, and he was hot. Jonah's so angry, he is accusing God of sinning against him, of doing an evil thing by not destroying Nineveh. And if you're wondering what is going on with Jonah, you're asking the right question. If you're thinking like, how can this happen that someone is so upset that God would show mercy and compassion? Well then, again, you're asking the right questions. Verse two helps us understand. So Jonah prayed to the Lord. And I was going to read this verse in kind of like a a whiny adolescence tone because that's kind of what Jonah is being right here. But uh, I'll just use my, my regular voice and you can kind of think back to when you were a teenager and your whiny voice, okay, and just insert it. Isn't this what I said, Lord? When I was still at home, when I was in Joppa and you called me, This is what I tried to forestall or to stop when I fled to Tarshish. I knew you are a gracious and compassionate God. I knew you were slow to anger and abounding in love. I knew you were a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, okay, now we got to get really whiny. Take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. And in this verse, we see more insight into Jonah's heart all the way back at the beginning in chapter one. There were a lot of reasons why Jonah decided to flee or to run away from God. And the fact that, and we've talked about this, that Nineveh and the Assyrians were a very dangerous people would have certainly been something that was not, uh, well, helpful for Jonah to go to Nineveh. But the the biggest thing that stopped Jonah is that he knew that God was compassionate and loving, and he knew if he went there, preached the word, and the Ninevites repented, that God's love and grace would be given to the Ninevites. And he didn't want that. Why? Well, the Assyrians were a powerful country, and they were a threat. They were a threat to Jonah and his safety. They were a threat to Jonah's family and their security. They were a threat to the entire country of Israel. You know why Jonah wanted the Ninevites gone? Not because it wouldn't be better for them, but because if they were gone, if they were wiped off the face of the earth, if they didn't repent and God gave them judgment, it would be better for him. It would be better for the things that he wanted, for his life and the peace that he wanted to experience or so he thought in his life. It would be better for his family. It would be better for his nation. These things were more important to Jonah in his little world, in his little mind, his little area of the universe than, well, God saving an entire city of people who ended up turning to the Lord in faith 
and receive salvation. Now, once again, it's easy to pile on Jonah. (laughs) But I, I was thinking this week as I was working through these verses, like what would a modern day comparison be to this? And, and I think it's easier to get where Jonah is than you might think. I, I want you to think about whatever nation it is in our world today that you think poses the biggest threat to our national security and safety. Now, I want you to think about the potential for that nation to be gone, to no longer be in power. For just to be kind of vanish. <laughs> How do you feel? That wouldn't be a bad thing. It's so easy to think a little bit like Jonah. And when it comes to loving our families and the desire for safety and security, I'm not saying those are bad things, but recognize what Jonah was doing and saying to him. It would be better for hundreds of thousands of people, not just to be their city destroyed, but to go to hell just so that his family and nation might feel a little more secure. And for us, I understand how it would be nice to feel a little more secure in this world. It's a great thing to pray about. But let me ask you this tough question. As much as you have prayed for the security of our nation... How much have you prayed for those other nations and for the people in those nations who may not know Christ to come to faith? Are we as diligent in praying for them and their souls? I have to admit that I'm not. And this week I found a little bit of Jonah in me. See, our second fill-in needs to be true for all of us. It's what God has called us to. God calls us to value souls more than personal comfort. God calls us to value souls more than me feeling a little more secure. Souls are more important than personal safety, national security, or peace, or the easy life. People's eternal destinations are the things that God cares about the most and what we need to care about the most as well. Here's the bigger picture. Every person is a soul that's going to spend eternity somewhere. And so every person is a soul that needs to hear the gospel. And do you understand when our our attitude, how important it is that not only with our words we share the gospel, but that we have an opportunity to, not just outside of our country, but inside it as well, to love the people around us with an opportunity to share the gospel, but also with an understanding that these are people for whom Christ died. And if Jesus went to the cross for them, what does that say for how we should feel about them? And so, how do you view the classmate who's a jerk and not very nice? I would challenge you to view him or her 
as a soul for whom Christ died. How do you view the family member who you don't get along with and you'd rather avoid? I would encourage you to view him or her as a soul whom Christ died for. And then may your actions follow. How do you view the neighbor who votes differently, thinks different, and takes care of their yard differently? Like, why can't they just clean it up? I'd encourage you to view them as a soul whom Christ died for and whom we have an opportunity to lead them to Jesus. So often, we think through life through the lens of, what do I want? What makes me happy? How will this situation work out to benefit me? And I get that. I do that too. But God opens our minds and opens our hearts and leads Jonah to realize there's a bigger picture here. Verse four. But the Lord replied, as he now teaches Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? And in that moment, what Jesus is doing, as Jonah is upset about a gracious and compassionate God who would spare the Ninevites, he points Jonah to the reality that he was the beneficiary of God's love and compassion. You were about to drown in the Mediterranean Sea, Jonah. What did I do for you? I sent a fish to save you. I called you to go to Nineveh and to the holy God, you said, no, I'm not going. And then God called you again. You said no, and what did I do for you? I gave you a second chance, Jonah. Ben, you want to hold grudges and to not be quite as nice to people who aren't nice to you. You have it in you where you don't want to freely forgive. Ben, what, what did I do for you? I sent Jesus to die for you and forgave your big debt. People, you'd, you'd rather worry about your own comfort and how things affect you and the people around you more than anything else. And God's asking, do, do you have any right to be angry at my love and compassion? What? What have I done for you? Number three, in fact, Jesus made his life all about you and not about him. Well, Jonah, he actually doesn't even answer God's question. Verse four again and following, the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? He doesn't even answer. He just Jonah goes out and sits down at a place east of Nineveh. There, he made a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see 
what would happen. So, so Jonah is still hoping for a fireworks display. And so God's trying to teach him. Jonah decides to go outside of town, set up a lawn chair, probably brought a lunch with him, you know, and sitting there just waiting for God to do his thing, hoping that God will still destroy Nineveh. Verse six, then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah in the entire book, this is the thing he was the most happy about. How self-seeking he was. Jonah was very happy about the plant. Now, this word provide is something we bump into over and over again throughout the book of Jonah. Um, if you recall, when Jonah was running away, what did God provide? A storm to stop him. When Jonah was sinking to the depths of the Mediterranean Sea about to die, what did God provide a fish to save him. When Jonah's feeling a little hot, what does God provide? A plant to give him shade. And then God provides something else, verse 7. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Again, he wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. As we go through life, just like with Jonah, God will provide things. And sometimes he provides a storm to get our attention. And sometimes he provides a fish to save us. And sometimes he provides a plant and then a worm and then a wind. And what I want you to see and what I want you to recognize is that not everything that God allows or not everything that God provides at first blush always seemed to be so good or so nice, or so helpful. And if God's greatest desire was just that you'd be happy and live an easy life, if God's greatest desire was for you to be happy, well, then it, it would make no sense the things that he sometimes provides or allows. But, but through Jonah, we were able to see a bigger picture that God's greatest desire is not your happiness, his greatest desire is your holiness through Jesus Christ. His greatest desire is that through the ups and downs of life, that he would provide things in our lives to help guide us as we stay in a faith relationship with him. Um, our number four, a fill-in, God provides what you need when you need it. And, and sometimes... He answers your prayer exactly the way you asked. And then other times, other times he sends a worm, which makes us upset. Sometimes he allows challenges in our lives, but not because he doesn't love you, 
not because he doesn't care for you, not because he's not hearing your prayers. He allows these things. He sends these things. He provides because, well, much like Jonah, he's continually teaching and directing and training. And sometimes, sometimes he just might allow your favorite plant to get eaten by a worm. What, what things in your life right now might you be thinking as being you know, something that is purely or only difficult and yet God might be providing to help continue to teach you and to train you and me. Verse nine, but God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? So he asks that same question from, number f- from verse four and Jonah's like, it is. I'm so angry I wish I were dead, still adolescent. All right, verse 10. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you didn't tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? The end. That's the end of the book. There's no chapter five. God kind of, Jonah kind of keeps us hanging. So what does God do? How does Jonah respond God asks this question, should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? And then Jonah vanishes off the pages of scripture. (laughs) It's over. And in that weird ending, do you know what we see? It's brilliant by the author who I'm pretty sure was Jonah, although we're not told specifically. The author is pointing us to the reality that this whole account of Jonah's life was not just about Jonah and God. It was about you and God. It was about me and God. Jonah I'm concerned about the eternal destination of thousands in Nineveh. What are you concerned about, Jonah? My head is hot from the sun and my plant died. (laughs) Jonah, I'm concerned about this generation and they have a relationship with me. What are you concerned about, Jonah? Well, you see, there was this worm and it killed my plants and now my bald head is sunburn. Jonah, I'm concerned about the most powerful city in the world at that time and the hundreds of thousands of people who live there. What are you concerned about, Jonah? Well, I live far away and I have to walk home now. Literally, he did. People have 
21st century America. God says, I'm concerned about the people in your generation. So many don't know Jesus. What are you concerned about? Well, you see, there's this jerk who cut me off in traffic, and I just can't stop thinking about that dude. And, and my kid doesn't get enough playing time on the basketball team. God says, I'm concerned about the eternal destinations of your coworkers, classmates, and your neighbors. What are you concerned about? And so often it's like, oh, I don't know that I'm going to be able to go on a nice vacation like everyone else. And I think my furniture is not in style anymore. And I know I'm being hard on you. I'm being hard on me. But it is so true. We get so focused on what we want and what we need. And in the grand scheme, it's not even that important. It's a plant, Jonah. It's furniture. It's one vacation. You're blessed without going on vacation. It's easy to make life all about me, isn't it? And at the end of Jonah, he stops with a question because he wants to direct us to the reality that life is all about him and there's a much bigger picture than what we think about on a daily basis. And I was thinking about this this week. I, I actually was so encouraged because I thought about the, the group of people that I get to do life with as a church and I thought about example after example after example of people at North Cross who get this who get that life is more than just about me. It's all about him and leading people to Jesus. And I see it as you volunteer your time, as you give your skills and gifts, as you, as you give your offerings to this ministry that we get to do together that is way bigger than just me and my little neighborhood and just my little family, but it's all about sharing the message of Jesus. And I'm so encouraged by you. And there might be some people here today listening online or in, in person that, you know, this is, this is a wake-up call, that I have been living too selfishly. I, I think for all of us, we need to hear this. It's easy to make life all about me. It's really all about him. It's a good encouragement for all of us. Last thing before we close. Jesus has an interesting take on Jonah and what it was really all about in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says this, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the huge fish, so the Son of Man himself will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they, it was true repentance, the men of Nineveh, the people of Nineveh, repented at the preaching of Jonah, but now... At the time of Christ, something greater than Jonah is here. And as we close this book, as we close this, this book about God's relentless grace, number five, the story of Jonah points us to something greater than Jonah. It points us to Jesus. And I have some comparisons here that I wanted to share with you and how much the symmetry, but also how different Jesus and Jonah were. So Jonah was a sinner who ran from God. Jesus is the God who runs towards sinners. 
Jonah was thrown overboard because of his sin. Jesus was nailed to a cross because of our sin. Jesus was resurrected from the fish after three, Jonah was resurrected from the fish after three days. Jesus was resurrected from his tomb after three days. Jonah waited for his enemies to be punished. Jesus was punished for his enemies. Jonah had a heart of anger. Jesus had a heart of love. Jonah needed a savior. Jesus was the savior. Jesus was the greater Jonah. So, what happened to Jonah? Did he come around? We're not told, but I, I think we have a clue. Who, um, who told the story of Jonah? I mean, who would have known the dialogue that Jonah had with God in the belly of the fish? Only Jonah. Who would have understood the other dialogue that went on from Jonah and, and God outside the city of Nineveh? Only Jonah. Jonah's the one who told the story. Now let me ask this. Who would tell a story about themselves that makes them look like an embarrassment? Why would you tell a story about yourself that makes you look like you do not have your act together? Except for if you understood that the story wasn't about you, but that you were telling it to point people to the relentless grace of God. This story was told so that you and I also would be pointed to the relentless grace of God. And I hope it did. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we, uh, we thank you for this book that you not only inspired, but you also preserved. And we pray that as we went through it, uh, that we would have a better understanding of not only um, where we fail, our sin, but also, more importantly, your grace, your relentless compassion and love and grace that led to you saving the people of Nineveh, but so many years later also, a recognition of saving us through the greater Jonah, through Jesus. Lord, I pray that we all live in the joy and in the motivation that comes through this relentless grace. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.